0: let's get started in the Word today. I want to meet you in Mark chapter 1, and I want to reemphasize one verse that was read during our gospel reading today. It's one verse among many in which Jesus is moving about, healing the sick, taking authority over the devil. But this one particular verse in Mark chapter 1, verse 34 He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and He did not allow the demons to speak because they knew Him. Uh, And we get that casting out of devils again a little bit later at the end of the Gospel reading in verse 39, but I really want to focus you on the fact that Jesus is casting out demon spirits, not allowing them to speak, and I want to just jump straight from there to Luke chapter 4. Okay, I know we're adding on to our our gospel reading by going to another gospel, but it's in order to show a little more depth into this process by which Jesus takes control over the forces of darkness. Luke chapter 4, verse 31, and I'll, I'll read a few verses in which Jesus goes to Capernaum. Verse 31, it's a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. That means he stays there a little while. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. I want you to notice the demon knows who Jesus is. And Jesus rebuked him and said, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out and it did not hurt him. And so just like Mark 1, Jesus casts out a devil and tells them to be quiet. Luke expands on that idea, shows the demon come out. We hear the demon speak. Jesus says, be quiet. Go to verse 40 of the same chapter. Luke 4:40 very similar moment when the sun was setting all those who had any all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on them and every one of them and healed them and demons also came out of many crying out and saying you are the Christ the son of God and he rebuking them did not allow them to speak for they knew that he was the Christ so we have it again and so We have three witnesses of the uh, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 4, does it twice. Three witnesses of Jesus telling those who are being released of demon spirits, be quiet, don't speak. We have two instances in which the demons identify Jesus. They identify Him as Holy One of God. They identify Him as Christ and they identify Him as Son of God. These are massively advanced theological revelations. What what I mean by that is Jesus will minister for years. We, we, We believe that Jesus' ministry lasts about three and a half years. That's based on an old Daniel prophecy. But in three and a half years of ministry, Jesus doesn't have very many people who call Him the Son of God. He doesn't have very many people who call Him Christ. That means anointed one. And when He does have it, it's a big deal. He asked his disciples at one point, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some people think you're Jeremiah, some people think you're Elijah, and some people think you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead. And Jesus goes, who do you think that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, the demons got that right in Luke 4. Peter could have learned it from the demons, but, but Jesus says, oh, Peter, flesh and blood hadn't told you that. My Father in heaven has revealed this to you, and on that rock I'm going to build my church. And so our whole foundation of Christianity is built on Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is the anointed of heaven, and yet when demons try to proclaim this early in the ministry of Jesus, he mutes it. He puts a silence to the forces of darkness revealing this most important revelation. It's literally the revelation that builds us. I mean, we're here today because we believe Jesus is alive, that He's not just a historical figure that lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago and unfortunately was crucified. And some people say maybe raised from the dead. That's crazy because people don't raise from the dead. But you know, the guy taught well, so we're going to come in here and talk about what he taught. (laughs) No, that's not our Christianity. Our Christianity is the belief that He is the Son of God, that He did die, but that His death was stepping into death for all of us so that His resurrection could be life for all of us. And we rally around the fact that if that's true, then He's Son of God, He's the Holy One, and He's Christ. And I didn't learn that from a demon. And I didn't learn that from someone who had had an exorcism performed on them. But, so why would Jesus take what is essentially the Christian message and silence it out of the voice of demons. Well, let's just deal with the elephant in the room when you talk about demons, and that is, where do these things come from, and what are they, and how is someone possessed? And how, okay, I'm not going to try to answer all of those theological questions because there's been books written on those, and much of it is conjecture, and much of it is someone's experience, and much of it is someone's life lived, and I'm not going to speak to someone else's experience. What I do know is that the Bible is not a book about the source of evil. It's not a book about the source of darkness. And the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about things like the origins of demons. Now, we do have extra-biblical books that aren't in our canon that talk about some of those things. But if I were going to simply establish a theology on extra-biblical books, I hope you realize there'd be a lot of things that we'd have to talk about that aren't based simply in the scriptures. So what we can do is look at the fact that the demonic that Jesus brings out stands for something. And I think in many cases it stands for all of the things that we're possessed by. And sometimes we're possessed by ideologies, we're possessed by experiences, we're possessed by what's been done to us. We're possessed by the stuff that we can't let go of, that won't let go of us. And we need delivered from them because they begin to consume us and they begin to take over our lives. Notice I'm using the pronoun our. I didn't say you and I didn't say them. Because the reality is, is that a lot of us have things that possess us and take us. And part of the Christian experience is being released from the possessiveness of all of the other things that try to control us and that and that we've given ourselves over to. And Christ comes in to clean the rooms of our heart, to go to work as a great physician, to do the healing that needs done in all of the possessed areas of our life. No, I'm not saying Christians are demon-possessed, but I hope you understand what Jesus is doing is he's releasing people from the garbage that has consume them. Like the Gadarene demoniac who has a legion worth of demons in him. A legion. is 6,000 Roman troops. And when Jesus says, what's your name? It's a legion. And the young man then, who's cutting himself and he's naked and he's living out in the cemetery and no one wants him in town. And he's the rejected generation. He's the young man with nowhere to go and no one to turn to. And Jesus releases him from that possession and clothes him and sits him and feeds him and speaks to him like a human. And that scares the town. Because it's scary to watch someone transform from something they're possessed by into something in which they are sit, seating and clothed and in their right mind. And that's the famous story of the pigs go over the cliff into the sea and die. And this young man is delivered from what possesses him. And in, and in every case of these demonic being released, in the early parts of the gospel, we have Jesus silencing the person so that they don't say anything. That's not the end of the story in regards to what happens in those who are released of the demonic. Remember, Jesus tells the story, and this is particularly interesting to me, and from a Christian perspective, Jesus tells the story, He says, There's a man, if a man is released of demons, the demons will go out and you clean the rooms of the house. And if they come back and find the rooms empty, they'll come back with spirit seven times stronger than themselves to repossess that place and we don't have to we don't have to figure out what all of that means in the realm of the spirit what we have to understand is that any room that is emptied needs refilled because nature abhors a vacuum and so does our spirit it abhors anything that's been emptied out whatever's been emptied out is going to be filled with something And so filling it with something proper and something full of the light of God and the love of the Father is essential. Otherwise, other ideologies and other problems and other fears and other anxieties and other stuff finds its way into those empty areas of our lives. This is why Jesus is not a principle, like we're just trying to replace your secular principles with Jesus principles, trying to get you to stop thinking so much this way and start thinking our way no we're not talking about replacing an idea with an idea we're talking about he who fills our life so that it begins to take possession of all of those other areas of our life so why then silence those demons that are coming out well part of it is because it's demons coming out is because it's the negative it's the wicked it's the evil and we don't see god in the in uh, in the wicked and we don't see god in the dark and we don't see god in the evil but What's disturbing, let's just be honest when we deal with the text. As much as we can, let's wrestle it from a place of truth, okay? So here's me wrestling it from a place of truth. They're telling the truth. Like the, de- the demons that are coming out of the people, they're not coming out going, this guy's a joker, he's a charlatan, you don't need to listen to him. I mean, I would expect that as they come out. And Jesus going, hey, be quiet, watch your mouth. No, instead they're coming out going, this is it. This is the holy one. Son of God right here, anointed, this is the Christ. And yet Jesus doesn't say, hey, listen to him. These demons are getting it right. Instead, he says, be quiet, close your mouth. So we need to wrestle with why. Because they're not lying. Okay, They're not telling an untruth. And Jesus is the Christ, and he is the Son of God, and he is the Holy One. And they're not coming out and acting as if he's not. So why does he silence them? And maybe it's because, and we'll start here and build on this, okay? But maybe it's because he doesn't want the message of the gospel and the peace and the kingdom of God to be delivered from the mouths of the demonic. Maybe the choice of God is not that the good news gets presented by people who come from a place of wickedness and darkness. Maybe that privilege belongs to the disciples. Maybe that privilege belongs to people. Maybe that privilege belongs to the church. And I don't doubt that. I I think that's very much a part of it, that Jesus anoints his own disciples and says, now go out and preach the kingdom and deliver the sick. And they do. And it's a great privilege. And they come back at one point so excited. Remember when he sends out the 70. He sends them out in 35 groups of two. And they come back and they say, demons responded to us in your name. And Jesus says, I watched Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's Jesus going, you guys have been shaking up the realm of the Spirit. And th- that's gotta be exciting for the disciples. And so maybe Jesus wants them to know the excitement rather than the demonic. But you know, I'm not satisfied with that. That's not, that doesn't do it for me. Like, I'm okay with it. I agree. He wants, he doesn't want the demons, like he don't want the demons getting the joy of spreading the kingdom. But there's gotta be more to it than that. And I believe that if we use the volume of the Bible to understand what people thought about God, when we get to the place of Jesus, we might have a better understanding. I want to remind you of something I quoted for you a moment ago. Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I told you, Peter could have got that from the demons because he's there in Luke 4. Maybe he hears... The demons say,, well, and, and maybe he's not there in Luke 4. I mean, he doesn't actually become a disciple until the next chapter, but Jesus cast the devil or casts a fever out of his mother-in-law the night before during the same miracle session. so he's at least there, whether he's a follower or not. But Jesus is very specific to say, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. The Father revealed this to you, which tells me that Jesus considers everything, not the Father, to be flesh and blood. In other words, two systems, either you learned it through the natural realm or you learned it through the supernatural realm. You either learned who I am because someone convinced you or something convinced you, or you learned who I am because the father convinced you, which tells me, and Jesus then says, I'm going to build my church on this, which tells me there'd be two ways to build a church. And one of those ways would be in the realm of the flesh and blood the realm of the natural, the realm of wisdom and intelligence and hard work and sweat and blood and tears and character and integrity and doing things the right way and lots of money and good buildings and good programs and stuff figured out. And you can build a lot of stuff that way. And we've seen a lot of stuff in the world built that way. And that doesn't mean that stuff built that way is inherently terrible because the systems of this world are essentially built on flesh and blood. And they're not inherently terrible. They just tilt towards terrible a lot of times. Being very honest, right? Not everything is inherently terrible, but everything can become corrupted. That is of flesh and blood. That which can't be corrupted is that which is of the kingdom. And so Jesus then contrasts it and goes, but there's also that which is given to you from the Father, from a Father's heart. The Father reveals something to you, and those are two different ways. And he goes, I'm going to build my church, my people, On the Father reveals His heart to them. Not flesh and blood, blood, sweat, and tears, goodness, greatness, the contrast. Even though good can come from this, so can evil. But over here is only the heart of the Father. Over here is a revelation in which you encountered Him directly from who He is. This puts the responsibility of building the church on Jesus and the father instead of you and me because if it were flesh and blood that built the church then it's our job to do it get busy and therefore I'd have the right to drop the hammer of intimidation on you as to whether or not you're doing enough for your part at the garden <laughs> or your part for the kingdom and, and a lot of us have heard that are you doing your part to build the kingdom My question is always, what's my part to build his kingdom? It's his kingdom. It's not mine. I didn't ask you to come build my house. It's his house. It's his kingdom. So I don't have to do my part to build the kingdom. He builds the kingdom whether I build the kingdom or not. I mean, who do you think you are? Right? But my part is to participate in the revelation of the kingdom. Flesh and blood didn't tell you this, Paul. My father told you this. I'm going to build my church on people meeting my dad. I'm going to build my church on people having a revelation of my father and his love. And this is why then Jesus navigates his way through the world as a reflection of his father. So that people that come to Jesus will know what God looks like. So there's no bait and switch. Because see, bait and switch is Jesus is so kind and loving and gracious and sacrificial and gentle and you want to follow him. And so you say yes to the sinner's prayer. And then they baptize you. And then Jesus shows you the switch in which he goes, now you got to please my dad. And my dad's hard to please. And my dad is a fireball of vengeance and holiness. And he is not going to put up with, and, and this drops on us like a bomb a lot of times when we come to the faith and then we go, wait a minute, are these two different characters? And we actually sort of preach them that way as if they are two different characters, sort of balancing it out. And that's what people mean when they go, you guys preach too much love. You got to preach that God's also holy. What they're actually saying is you're preaching too much Jesus and not enough God, but that's a lie because Jesus is what God looks like. And so wherever you think it's out of balance, too much Jesus, it simply tells me you've never actually met the Father. Because the Father and the Son come from the same stock. He's not a rebellious Son. Israel tried to call Him that. I know I'm out in the theological weeds here, but can I, can I drag you out here with me for a second? I didn't plan all this, but you've got to go with me. Israel tried to call him a rebellious son. Do you remember Jesus saying, John the Baptist came neither eating and drinking, and you guys said he had a demon. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you call him a glutton and a wine-bibber. Remember that? Which means that Jesus was eating and drinking enough that people thought he was eating and drinking too much for whatever that's worth. But do you know that has a much deeper theological meaning? Because in the Old Testament, if your son was in rebellion against you, you could take him to the elders in the city, and if the rebellion was big enough, he was labeled a glutton and a winebibber and stoned to death. So to call someone a glutton and a winebibber was to call them rebellious against their father's name. When Jesus says, you call me a glutton and a winebibber, he's doing more than saying you're making fun of me for how much I'm eating and drinking. He was saying, you think I'm in rebellion against the God you've, you know. I'm not in, re- I, oh, I'm in rebellion against the God you know. I'm not in rebellion against my Father. So there's a very deep, there's some deep water there of Jesus saying, I'm being accused of being in rebellion against a God you've created. I want you to come to a revelation of the Father. I'm not going to allow it to happen through any other way but through a revelation of the Father. Therefore, if Christ builds his church, it's Jesus' job to reveal himself to you. Pastor Paul tries, I'll read the text, I'll bring out the loveliness of Christ as I see it, and my responsibility is not to heap upon you shame, guilt, condemnation, fear, but to give you the love of God and allow the Holy Spirit to do the work in your life, not to try to transform you, but allow the Holy Spirit to do what He will do. I can't be your judge or your jury, and if I do, I try to step in and take the place of the master builder. I won't do that. And so in not doing that, I have to step back and trust the Holy Spirit to reveal Himself to you through a revelation of the Father. That's a slow game. That's the slow game. That's what we call the long game, right? The short game is quick fix. Everybody conform to a standard. Stop wearing this, start watching this, stop watching this, stop listening to this, start doing this, don't drink that, don't eat that, don't go there, don't, 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 don't. Been in those? Notice how they just keep going up? Of course they do, because somebody else is offended. Somebody didn't like that, somebody reading that text, boom, boom, just going through the roof. And if that won't work, then we'll just legalize it or make it illegal. No one gets to do it. It's illegal. We're a Christian nation. We're not going to allow people to do that, watch that, drink that, go there, but un- until it starts to encroach upon your thing. And then appeal that law, start a new law, do something. M- my point is that if you want to, grab to have uniformity, then you can try legalism. You can try legal codes and laws and stuff and you won't transform hearts because that only happens because flesh and blood can't reveal this. Flesh and blood can get you in line, but they can't introduce you to the father. So Jesus says, my father has to do this. And on that, I'm going to build my church. And so my church is then built off of that revelation. So what's this got to do with demons? Okay. Well, demons don't get to They don't get to participate in this. The darkness doesn't get to be that which gives you the revelation. But much greater than that is the fact that Jesus is walking in the room and delivering people visibly and physically. This is the physical, visible miraculous. This is watching God do things and going, I believe because I saw God do something. And it's the very thing that people say they want now in order to believe in God. They'll say things like, if I could see God do a miracle, I'd believe in it. If God would do this, I would do that. This is it. Here's what we're saying without saying it. I can be bought. My faith can be bought. But I but it's not really faith. My reason can be bought. If God will do it scientifically and reasonably, even if it's miraculous and my eyeballs can see it and my brain can at least acknowledge it, I'll believe. It's asking God to perform in my realm only. It's not allowing me to elevate my faith into the realm of God. It's demanding God come down to my dimension to do things the way I'll believe them. And if I see him do them in my dimension, he's got me. I'll follow him. My question is, does that work? Go, Go to Psalms chapter 103. Because I told you we have the body of the Old Testament to help us with this. We're not just up here rattling along and trying to land on a spot. We actually have scripture, Psalm chapter one hundred three, verse seven. God made known His ways to Moses. He made known His acts to the children of Israel. Let me read that again. Psalm one hundred three seven. God made known His ways to Moses. His acts to the children of Israel. Listen to that in the New Living Translation, the NLT. He revealed his character to Moses. He revealed his deeds to the people of Israel. Character, his way, his acts, and his deeds. Two different things. Moses gets his character. Israel gets his action. Who believed? Moses or Israel? Moses, the psalmist is giving you a contrast. Moses walks with God, sees his face. Well, sees his backside, sees his goodness. Highest prophet the Old Testament has until, and until the Old Covenant has until John the Baptist is Moses. The prototype of leadership. But he knows God's character. He knows God's ways. He comes back to God every day because he knows his heart. The Old Testament says that God spoke to Moses from between the cherubim, which means that Moses would show up at the door of the tabernacle and hear God's voice. And he knew God's heart. Israel wanders over and over into idolatry and into sin. Why? Because they know God's actions. They only see stuff happen. And seeing stuff happen wasn't enough to make them believe. It only helped them believe until it happened again. And they would lose their faith and then it would happen again. they go, "Oh, okay, well, we believe. But even that didn't work because at first they loved the manna. Every day there's bread outside my tent. I didn't even work for it. This is incredible. By the end of the wilderness journey, the Bible says they were complaining and they hated it because the miraculous doesn't convince you of the Heavenly Father. Because the miraculous is done in the realm of the flesh and the blood. It's done in the realm. You can see with your eyes and you can touch with your hands and you can experience with your natural sense. It doesn't demand faith. Once it's there, you saw it happen in the natural and you go, okay, I'll follow a God I can see. Israel knew the God of action, but they didn't make them believe. Moses knew God's ways. Let's compare it New Testament thinking. Think of it this way. The ways of God, the character of God is what Paul says to the Philippians when he says, I want to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. He doesn't say, I want to see God move. He says, I want to know God. I want to know what He's like. I want to know what He's like and the power of being a new man, and I want to fellowship in His sufferings. If it means going through hell with Him, I want to go through hell with Him. I want to know how God would handle it. And I only know this by spending time. This is why, as pastor, I beg you to carve some space in your life for the discipline of meditation and prayer and Bible study. Not because I'm trying to put you under the law or legalism. In no way am I trying to tell you that you're not saved if you don't do it. You won't be righteous. God won't forgive you. I'm telling you that you'll starve. (laughs) It's, It's the appeal that there'll be times when you feel parched in your soul. And you go, why am I thirsty? And it's because He's saying to you, Give me me some minutes in your life. Let's just you and I sit here and let me wash you off. I want to wash you off because the world splashed mud on you yesterday and they told you you weren't worth anything and they made you feel terrible and guilty and all you're doing is underneath stress and anxiety and I want 10 minutes of your life to just shower you with my love and tell you that I accept you and tell you that I paid a great price for you and maybe convince you. Give me a chance to convince you, son, Give me a chance to convince you, daughter. Don't let the news do it. Don't let your friends do it. Don't let work do it. Don't let your bank balance do it. Let me Give me a shot here. Give me a chance to convince you that I love you, that I'm, I'm on your side. Give me a chance to show you my heart, not just my ways. I know that every time you pray to me, you ask me to do, and I want to do, but I really want you to know me. And so sometimes carve space where it's not just, Lord, please do this. But where it's, I want to know you. I want to know what you sound like. I want to know your heart. Now, I want to warn you, okay? Because it's not fair to tell you to do this and not give you the the PSA, public service announcement. (laughs) For all of those of you who dare to try this, who dare to say, I want to know you. Sometimes your heart will break because that's what happens to God's heart. And he goes, if you wanna know what I feel like, this is what I feel like. And bad stuff will still happen to you because bad stuff still happens to him. And he goes, it's okay. You're getting to know me. I don't abandon you in the valley of the shadow of death. I hold your hand, I walk through. I'm even gonna prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. I'm not gonna kill all your enemies. I'm gonna prepare a table before you. Can I take you out in the theology weeds again one more time on a Sunday morning? Did you know that preparing a table before you in the presence of your enemies, if you'll marry that concept to Jesus' concept of love your enemies, guess who gets to eat at the table in the presence of your enemies? Take a shot. Your enemy. I'll prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Invite your enemies in. This is the, the heart of God, this is the heart of the Father. I'm going to open a discourse with you. I want you to not know my actions alone. I want you to know my ways. John 8, 26, I'll quote, but you can go there. Jesus says, I have spread to the world the things which I heard from the Father. Hear that again. I have spread to the world the things I heard from my Father. Jesus' entire life then, as far as he was concerned, was obsessed with spreading the word that he heard his dad say, not just doing stuff. This is why Jesus would move into a place, listen to what his father had to say, speak life into the room and into the situation, and oftentimes be Rejected by people who were waiting on him to do things instead of talk to them. There's a contrast of this in John four, where Jesus goes to Sychar, a little village in Samaria. Good Jew boys, don't, Jewish boys in the first century don't go to Sychar. They don't go there because that's Samaritan territory. And Jewish boys would cross the Jordan and go a day out of the way to avoid Samaria to get to Galilee, and so. Jesus must needs, John 4 says, old English way of going, Jesus had to. And he had to because his dad said, let's go to Sychar. So Jesus doesn't question his father. He goes, all right, let's go to Sychar. Not supposed to go to Sychar. Something's supposed to happen in Sychar. Well, when they get to Sychar, the disciples are nervous because they're not supposed to be there. So they go shopping. (laughs) It's the only way you get a group of men to go shopping because they're out of their right mind. I just thought of that. That was a revelation from God. (laughs) No, don't attribute that to the Father. He didn't have anything to do with that. I do spout some things once in a while that he goes, I didn't have anything to do with that. That was definitely one of them. So they go shopping. They go finding bread. And Jesus hangs out by the well. And in the middle of the day, here comes the woman, you know the story, who comes to the well the woman at the well and women don't come to the well at noon. It's hot. You need the water in the morning. They don't have running water in their house. You got to go to the well to get your day's water, to cook, to clean. And you don't get it in the middle of the day. What were you doing all morning? She's missing out on getting the water because she's tired of getting judged. She shows up and says, I had five husbands. I'm living with a guy I'm not married to. I, I, well, Jesus tells her that. But that's her backstory. So we kind of know why she avoids the well. Well, she's so intrigued by Jesus. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't heal her. He hasn't cast out a devil. He doesn't walk on the water. When she pulls her bucket up, he doesn't turn it into Pinot Noir, which would have been an amazing miracle. He just did that two chapters ago. He could have went try that bucket, <laughs> dip it down in there. We'll do that again. What what varietal do you want this time? You want some Cab? I can do it. Quick transformation. He doesn't do any of that. He just talks to her. He just reveals the heart of his father. And she's so amazed she leaves her bucket. She came to get water and she leaves it and goes back to her town and she says, I just met a man, you're not going to believe it. And they say, well, we're not going to believe it unless we hear him. So she goes and gets him and he comes to the house and he preaches and everyone in the town goes crazy and excited. And the Bible says in John 4, all he does is talk to him. He leaves Sychar and heads back to Judea. And when he arrives, he goes into a Jewish house. And the Bible says that a nobleman had a sick son. No one would believe on him. And a nobleman brought his son to Jesus and said, he's sick, would you heal him? And Jesus turns to the crowd and says, you people, I like how the King James says this, you people won't believe unless you see a miracle. And he heals the young man and the place is lukewarm. They believe, but not as Samaria did. You know why John throws those two in? to show you that Gentile, the Samaritans, the half-breeds, they're not supposed to be the ones. They get the words of Jesus and believe. And Israel, whose rootstock was seeing God do stuff, if you don't come in here and do something, we're not going to believe in you. And Jesus goes, that's exactly right. If I don't do anything, you won't believe. Let me tell you why. I did that whole sermon to give you this principle. Let me tell you why Jesus tells the demons to be quiet. Because the revelation of who the Father is supposed to come because you meet the father and you hear his words not because you see an exorcism or you see a miracle or you see a deliverance and jesus didn't want people coming to a revelation of following god he wanted them to come to a revelation of following the father and it's the father's words spoken over us that's the source of our faith and it's why it's god's job See, we're proclaimers of good news. That's all we can do. We just trumpet it. But at the end of the day, I don't transform you. I don't know how. I don't want to. I'm I'm, I'm okay with whatever you are. I leave it up to God to work on the inside. (laughs) I I leave it up to God to go through the rooms, to go through your heart. I let the Holy Spirit walk the halls of your heart and say, we need to do some work in this room. It's way better that He does it than that I do it. I'm not going to know how to handle that. What I do believe is that it's His job to pursue us. He pursues us with His love. He pursues us with His revelation. I'll close for you today in John 17. Go with me real quick to John. One more, one more John. I love John's gospel. One more spot from John 17. Listen to Jesus talking. If you didn't know, and I probably didn't tell you, if I were titling this today, I would title it the gift of words because I think what Jesus gave as a gift to humanity was the word, the logos. Word is transformative. Word penetrates your darkness and turns the light on. And what Jesus gave was the words. He gave the word of life, he gave the word of his father, he gave the word of his love. Listen to John 17:4. I have glorified you. This is Jesus talking to his father. I've glorified you on the earth. I finished the work which you gave me to do. He hadn't even went to the cross yet. How in the world does he say, I finished the work? He hasn't went to the cross. <laughs> well, it's two different kinds of work Jesus is talking about. But the work of, of speaking into the world the love of the Father is done. He doesn't have to go to the cross. The cross, cross will be an expression of the love of God. It'll be manifestation of the love of God. But the word's already been done. Jesus has placed it into the work into the world. And now, O Father, verse 5, O Father, glorify me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the world was. I have manifested Your name to the men who You've given me out of the world. They were Yours, and You gave them to me, and they've kept Your word. Now they've known that all things which You've given me are from You. Watch this. For I have given to them the words which You have given me. They received them and have known surely that I come forth from you and they have believed that you sent me. That's it. That, verse 8 is why the demons aren't allowed to do this. I gave them the words you gave me. They received them and that made them know that I came from you and they believed. I wanted them to believe because they heard me tell them you love them. Because they heard me tell them you're good. I wanted them to believe because they heard through me, who you are. I didn't want them to believe because I can walk on water or because I can raise the dead or because I can turn the water to wine. Because if we build a foundation of them believing because I do, the minute something isn't done to their liking, they go find another God. We got an entire Old Testament of that. The minute it doesn't happen the way I think it ought to happen, well, I'll go find me another, because that's us. I'll go find me another God. And Jesus says, Father, I've gave them your words and they've believed because of that. So I implore you today to believe on Jesus because of the Father that he shows you. Because he shows you the Father. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God sounds like? Listen to Jesus. You want to know where God would go? Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Jesus is the heartbeat of the Father. He's the mouthpiece of the Father. And I pray revelation on you through meeting Jesus today. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, it is not my job to reveal you to these people. I try to take them by the spiritual hand and lead them into the throne room as close as I can. But I can't make them look. I can't make them listen. I can't make them experience. I can't make them believe, and it wouldn't do any good if I tried. So, Father, all I try to do is walk your people into your presence, and then it's all on you. And you're you got big shoulders. You know how to do this. <laughs> it's all on you. <laughs> You reveal your heart of love to your people today, Father, as only you can. I would be so short in doing this. I would mess it up and I would lay myself in there and there'd be judgments and condemnations and confusions, but you bring the light of love as only you can. So, Father, for everyone in this room and everyone that watches that'll take your hand and let you walk the rooms of their life, you're ready to clean those rooms out, but you don't leave them. You fill them with your grace and your compassion and your love and your favor. And Father, you do it not through the arm of flesh and blood, ideologies, money, wisdom, knowledge, politics, power. You do them through Jesus. And so Father, we don't want a revelation of your strength out of the mouth of miracles. I want a revelation of your Love out of the mouth of your son. And so we ask you to do the work that only you can do. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.